Freddy's home. You want to know who Fred Krueger was? He was a filthy child murderer who killed at least 20 kids in the neighborhood. He wears a dirty brown hat. He's horribly burned. He has razors on his right hand. The bastard son of a hundred meters. They burned him to death in his boiler room. And they hid the remains. But he can't get you now. He's dead, honey, because mommy killed him. When I was alive, I might have been a little naughty. But after they killed me, I became something much, much worse. This is now playing's A Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective series. Welcome to Freddy 101. Hosted by Arnie, Stuart, and Brock. Twisted, lonely souls. The worst of the criminally insane. We got special work to do here, you and me. We will be reviewing all Freddy's films from Wes Craven's original through 2010's hotly anticipated remake. Who is that? But beware. These discussions will be spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. You can find new episodes of this series released every week at nowplayingpodcast.com. Today we're talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street, starring Heather Lankenkamp, John Saxon, Ronnie Blakely, Nick Corey, introducing Johnny Depp and Robert Englund, directed by Wes Craven. This is Brock. And I'm Stuart. And this is Arnie. And I'm really glad we're doing A Nightmare on Elm Street. (laughs) Why is that, Arnie? Well, I am a huge Nightmare on Elm Street fan. Stuart knows this. Brock, you don't. When I got my very first apartment, I was 19 years old, I walk into my apartment and I've got boxes everywhere. And sitting on top of one of those boxes is a Freddy glove that I'd gotten at a Spencer Gifts in, you know, years before, back when Freddy's Dead came out. Very first thing I do in my first apartment, take a nail, put it in the wall, hang the Freddy glove and say, everywhere I live, that Freddy glove will be on the wall in the living room. Move to the next apartment, first thing up was the Freddy glove. Move to the next apartment, first thing up was the Freddy glove. Move to the next apartment, first thing up was the Freddy glove. And then the now wife moved in and said no. <laughs> I was about to say, I've been to your house. I don't see that Freddy glove in the living room anymore, Arnie. Yeah, I didn't see that Freddy glove when I was there either. Yeah. Would you put one of those mechanical hands from Halloween that moves itself? No, this was just a glove I wore. I used to actually drive around town with it when I had a stick shift because it felt really cool to drive a stick shift with a glove. Uh, Yeah. um, Like I said, I'm a big Nightmare on Elm Street (laughs) fan. I I know stories about your fandom that might make you blush. We will get to them with future installments. I'm so glad because I didn't want to rat you out. I'm glad you're willing to. Uh... Oh, I will rat myself out as we go yeah. through the movies. I will share some of my levels of fandom. But suffice it to say, Nightmare on Elm Street has been and continues to be my favorite horror franchise of all time. And I really hope the new remake doesn't fuck it up. Okay, I'm going to go take a different tack on this. I saw all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies because I was a huge horror buff growing up. But Nightmare was always a sticking point with me. And the reason being, I felt, and those that have heard my other, you know, gripes and beefs on Halloween and Friday the 13th, 
I'm never happy when we're identifying more with the killer than the victim. And the, this became the Freddy show. Literally, it became a Freddy show for a while there. It's all about Freddy. And so, I don't know. I like to identify with the main character. And we'll get to the movies. But I don't feel like Nightmare excels at that. I think that it is about Freddy as witty, self-deprecating jokester. And... I don't know. We'll see how that goes. I'm interested in seeing the remake a lot because I feel like I would like to see a more dark take on the subject than what's been presented or what I remember being presented. And so I'm hopeful, actually, that we'll end this with the best one ever made. I always hope that. And just to clarify, Stuart, you have seen all of these before as well, right? I rented them. I'd, I've never been to the movie theater to see them, with the exception of Freddy versus Jason. I always rented them the next year when they came out on VHS. And then you and I, I believe, did a horror marathon about six, seven years ago where we watched all of them in like one day. It was crazy. But fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was and- long. <laughs> That's what I really remember. It was long. And probably no surprise to anybody listening to this, if you listen to other Now Playing podcasts, I am the newbie here to this series. I have seen this original one before. I rented it my senior year of high school and had a great time watching it. And of course, I watched Freddy vs. Jason when we did the Friday the 13th series. But the rest of them, I have never seen, don't know anything about them, beyond what you would typically know just being in the pop culture in the 80s. So I'm really looking forward to finally seeing these films, as I was with Halloween and Friday the 13th. And Stuart, I have to echo something you said already. I, too, have high hopes for the remake, having Mm -hmm. a darker spin on this, because there is certainly room there for that darker spin and still tell a very similar story. Yep. I'm surprised you guys found this one to be so light. But before we get into that movie proper, this is the movie that introduced me to horror. It's also the movie that introduced me to the so-called horror meister, Wes Craven. And I say so-called because I was such a Nightmare on Elm Street fan that I've gone back and seen much of his oeuvre, including Last House on the Left, Shocker, that werewolf thing he did, Vampire in Brooklyn, (laughs) the Scream trilogy. I did avoid that violin movie he made. Music of my heart? Yes, it's the scariest thing he's ever made. Meryl Streep and a bunch of kids with cellos. (laughs) And it had NSYNC doing the music, so you know it was scary. I actually, despite being a huge Nightmare on Elm Street fan, I don't like Craven. I went back and I watched The Last House on the Left, and I've got to say, and Brock, when you and I did the Rob Zombie podcast, you talked about how brutal it was. This is a movie from 1972, and I didn't think I could be stunned by brutality in film. I love Rob Zombie stuff. I watched that, and that was like, it was truly low budget, low production quality, and just there for safety masochistic purposes and his other stuff swamp thing shocker i don't think they're very well-made films and i don't think he's that great of a director so you know i'm a huge freddy fan not so much a craven fan let me put a fine point on it it really bugs me that wes craven is called a master of horror i've heard that term used master of horror why because he made a lot of horror films Would you call Bear Stearns masters of the subprime mortgage? No. Just because (laughs) they did it a lot didn't mean they ever did it well. You know, like, I feel like Wes Craven at best, his best stuff are kind of campy hoots. You might think they're funny. 
but horror is about being scared, and he is not talented in making a scary movie at all. The only ones, and we'll talk about Nightmare in a bit, but the only other ones that you've mentioned at all that I'd give any credence to are Scream, and that was, A, written by somebody else and had a very winking sense of humor. It worked as much as a comedy as a straightforward horror movie. But yeah, Master of Horror, no, that really makes me angry. He does not deserve the title. He came of age at the same time Sam Raimi came of age, at the same time John Carpenter came of age, much lesser filmmaker than either one of those. And both of those guys have had their dry spells, but they've had a good run here and there. I wouldn't say Wes Craven ever had a good run. And I do have to say, I do like the Scream movies. They, you know, decreasing, maybe we'll do a retrospective on those some days to get into specifics. I did like Red Eye. Cillian Murphy's just creepy anyway, though. Oh, that was great. That was Wes Craven. That was a good movie. I like that one. It came out the same year as Cursed, so it's his high point and low point all in 2005. (laughs) (laughs) But of his work, the only ones that I would watch multiple times are The Nightmare on Elm Street, Shocker, and The Screams. Sure. The Swamp Thing is the one with Adrian Barbeau. That's the one you're talking about? Mm. Wow. I didn't really realize that was him. I have very limited exposure to the guy, so I'm going to take both your words for it. Maybe as we go along with this series, I'll see what you guys mean about the title not fitting the man. Well, this is his only entry until New Nightmare. It should be pointed out, and part of the reason I'm interested in following the series is people are going to take his creation and run with it. And I'm even going to predict, if memory serves me, people do it better than he did. Hmm. I'm willing to meet the people a little bit. I mean, these are low budget, made independently when independent really meant something. I mean, it meant like people going out with some film equipment that didn't cost that much to rent and just doing it on their own with very little financing. New Line was nothing of a company when they made this. I mean, it was made for very little. And the fact that they've created such iconic characters that they're now making multi-million dollar sequels and reboots to is a testament to some. I'm not going to sit here and say Wes Craven had no good ideas. There's something to their work, but you got to dig deep. I mean, you need six shovels to get to some of the good stuff in this work. And I do have to say, again, I'm a huge fan of this. And while I think that Nightmare on Elm Street is Wes Craven's best work, I'm not disparaging it. I am going to talk very highly about even this first installment, which he wrote and directed. And like you said, New Line was nothing, and New Line's been referred to as the house that Freddy built because it was their first feature that they financed and distributed. And as they grew, when they needed more money, they churned on the Freddy machine because Freddy was very profitable for them. You could say, were it not for Wes Craven, we would not have Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and you know how that hit me home watching this movie? The New Line logo comes up and it's like this ugly dot matrix orangey <laughs> gr- orangey thing like made on a computer. I'm like, where's the where's the film frame with the askew sprocket? Where's their logo? They haven't even started there yet. Like you're catching this company right from the outset. And had this movie not been a hit, it probably would have yeah, folded within a year or two like so many of those companies. Yeah, it is the house that Freddie built. And so, again, you have to give Craven and his crew here real credit for, yeah, founding a studio. Rest in peace. <laughs> yeah, that logo really was atrocious, wasn't it? I think that every time I turn it on and it, like, flashes that red, it's like out of Halloween 3. I'm just like, oh, boy. I can't wait to find out when it's introduced and in which Nightmare installment we get the real one. 
I won't tell you, but I do know. Oh, okay. So this movie was made for how much money? $1.8 million. Wow. Because some of the special effects in this were, I thought, clever. Honestly, I think they used the money well from what I could see. Only $1.8 million. Jeez. $1.8 million isn't what it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's no, true. That, so why don't we start talking about the movie itself? The movie opens up with that fantastic new line, Dot Matrix logo. And then it's a small box where we see Freddy creating his killer glove. And I thought that was awesomely creepy. What a great scene that is because the music, I love the score to this movie. It is so perfect. And it's by Charles Bernstein. And it is as much a part of Freddy as the is of Jason. You're talking about the piano theme, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, the piano theme, yes. The electric guitar and some of the synthesizer chase (laughs) music, not so much. But I'll give you the piano theme is great. But right there when he's building the glove, it is synth music. It's the bass-heavy synth music, and it works so well with the sound effects of the building of this glove. And I suppose we should do a quick summary. The entire movie takes place after Fred Krueger is dead. Fred Krueger was a child killer, and he was arrested, let go because of a technicality, and so a group of parents got together and burned him alive. And now he comes back in people's dreams to avenge himself by killing the children of the people who kill him. And so this entire movie takes place after he's dead, but during this opening credits, obviously he's very much alive as this is the genesis of his weapon, the four-pronged glove that everybody knows. Yeah. It's so cool, and it sets such a mood because it says there's a dangerous motherfucker out there with some knives and we immediately jump into the dream with that i love it i think Uh, it really works as you said before to set the mood of the piece because when you look at it and you start to think what kind of sick individual even thinks about doing this and then has the wherewithal to make it and then when he puts it on the first time wow it completely sucks you in so whereas it doesn't really go with the next scene so much it really got me interested in knowing what the heck is going on it really scoops you into this movie head on It's the defining attribute of Kruger, but I'm willing to kick this around a little bit here. Arnie, you're the fan. I really want to hear your take on it. Why would that be your weapon of choice? Because it seems to me like if you put five razors on your hand, if the people don't come and burn you alive, you'll probably crack your jugular open, scratching an itch or wiping your brow or something like (laughs) it. It doesn't seem like it's made to hurt anyone so much as yourself through, you know, false placement. You know, like I think about how much I wipe my face or my eyes and I just know I would be covered in scars by the end of the day. It's funny you say that because Robert England has had that exact experience because there are sharp props needed for certain scenes and he has to be very (laughs) careful with them. You know, I think it's very primal. I mean, this is obviously in the 80s, so perhaps somebody was really a big Wolverine fan and decided to make it a horror film because Wolverine was around in the comics. And gloves were big. You know, Michael was doing the one glove thing and, you know, there's all these like rockers were wearing like fingerless gloves. Like, gloves were just kind of in vogue. I'm not sure why. It was the 80s. Why was anything in vogue? Drugs. (laughs) But (laughs) the other thing is, it's kind of primal, isn't it? It's like talents. It's, you know, very personal. If you compare it to a knife or a chainsaw, items that can be dropped, this becomes almost a part of him in some way. And 
I don't know. I've never analyzed it before, but now that you've asked me, that's what I think is it's a very personal kill. It's killing with your hand more than with a tool. Yeah, you feel like your very touch is doing it. I kind of get that, but I guess I would have liked a little bit more pathology and what I'm hoping the new movie does. I keep projecting into the new reboot what they might do with this that this movie only hints at is that they might show you one kill when Freddy is still just a mortal with that glove. I would like to see how he used it. I, it appears from the trailer footage that they are doing a little bit more backstory. So it piqued my interest. I didn't mind that this was the opening. In fact, in some ways, I think it's the perfect opening. But it almost leaves more questions than answers. I mean, what do you do with one single razor-handed glove? <laughs> What's the sound of one razor glove clapping? <laughs> I was- Ouch. <laughs> ouch, 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 ouch. I do want to interject while we're talking about the backstory. It has been told once before. Around the time of A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, Freddy Krueger had a TV series called mm. Freddy's Nightmares, A Nightmare on Elm Street, the series. And basically, he was the Rod Serling of that series as people just had various nightmare-plagued, random, evil happenings. But once in a while, usually during sweeps, Freddy was a part of that episode, and he would be the villain. And in the very first episode, you got to see him burned alive they never showed his face they only kept him in shadow and imagine what it would look like if you only had say five thousand dollars to tell this whole tale (laughs) none of the parents from this movie came back can I just say, Freddy's Nightmares was one of the worst shows I've ever sat through. <laughs> and whatever you do, however much you love Nightmare on Elm Street, stay far, far away from it. I bet you it's not even available on DVD, is it? It's not. They released it in, I think, the UK in Region 2, the first season, and it sold so poorly, they're not even doing the rest. <laughs> so, the plot you told us about with the parents killing Freddy, you don't find that out until late into the movie. And I thought that was a really great choice. Because if they told us the story chronologically, it probably wouldn't have been as compelling. I think for the glove to start off and then going into the dreams and then going into what's going on, it's to have the story come back later with the big confessional, it's important so things get in perspective. So I really think the film unfolded really well with the plot because otherwise it's pretty thin. I think it worked well. And as being part of a Freddy fan, I was really interested in Freddy before I ever saw this movie. And... I was a little scared of horror at 12. I was afraid to watch horror because I think I mentioned during the Friday the 13th podcast how I saw the decapitation. It just messed with my head. But Freddy kind of called to me around the time Dream Warriors came out. So I actually picked up the novelization of these movies. (laughs) And I read the novelization of parts one, two, and three before I ever saw one of the movies. And so this time watching it for this review is the first time ever in, God, 20 years more than that that I realized that truly, for the first two-thirds of the movie or more, this guy's a complete enigma. You don't know who he is, why he is. You just know he's some gross, deformed dude. You don't even know why he's deformed who is killing people in their sleep. And that is truly effective. I love the idea of using dreams as the uh, slaughterhouse. That is such a interesting new bent. And it's this is not the only movie at the time to be doing this. There was right at around the same time, there was a Dennis Quaid action movie called Dreamscape. It was a movie I really dug. And this concept was very much in vogue. 
And it's just so creative and fun and fresh. I mean, first of all, I feel like by being in a dream world, it finally answers the cliche why the killer can be everywhere and anywhere. You know, that's one of the things that always annoyed me about Friday the 13th was someone sees Jason and runs a mile through the woods and ends up running straight into Jason. And how does that happen? Well, in a dream, anything can happen. And the other part is you can't avoid it. You can avoid going to summer camp. You can avoid getting into the ocean. You can boycott Halloween. But you cannot avoid having dreams. So there's just no escape. You have to face it. And I think if Wes Craven got nothing else right in this movie, choosing that as the battlefield was spot on. I completely agree with you. I think the idea of having nightmares that scare people in everyday life can really hit a chord. And it gets fantastical, sure. But sometimes the best dreams do just that. So I think the idea, the concept is fantastic. What also I love about this movie is, although Freddy is the murderer, and we have no idea, as Arnie said, about who this guy is, he really isn't in this movie all that much. When the nightmares and, and the killings happen, we see a glove or a shadow. We don't always see Freddy. And I thought that was really interesting, too, because it kept the mystique going for even longer until the final battle. We'll talk about it when we get there as we walk through the movie. There's a conversion point. I'm going to go back to some of the other horrors that we've talked about. Uh, On the other end of the spectrum, there's Michael Myers, and he is a complete blank. As you speak of, he is only inference. We don't see his face. He is white and threatening, and he's just called a shape. We don't really know what's going on underneath, what he is. He's the most ambiguous horror killer there is. At some point, they stop modeling Freddy in the movie on that character, and he starts making jokes, and he starts heading towards where he's going to end up, which is on the other end of the spectrum. And I feel like if we were to compare all three, Jason falls somewhere in the middle there, where sometimes he can cock his head or do something that shows a sense of humor, but largely he is without a personality and hides behind a mask. I'm going to argue with you a little on this, Stuart, because I think you're projecting your baggage from the future sequels into this movie. I will agree with you that Freddy is the star of this series, and with Friday the 13th and Halloween, nobody gives a shit about the killer. He's just a scary guy who pops up. You're far more interested in what he's going to do to the victims than anything and where they're going to pop up, what door they're hiding behind. And I think as we saw with the Friday the 13th sequel, once Freddy came on and changed the landscape, They tried to give Jason some personality as much as they could with the fact that he doesn't talk. Mm -hmm. And they tried to make him a little bit more funny in a mime kind of way. But Freddy is the star of these films. And you want to see what Freddy does. Freddy, by being in this dream world, has limitless power and can do anything, can be anything. It's so much better than what is Jason going to stick in the next person. Yep. And these are things that on their first movie, they only had a limited budget that they could bring in and a limited amount of this that they could really realize. And it gets better as it goes. But I do not see Freddy making jokes in this. He has lines like, I'm going to split you in two. I'm going to kill you slow. That part where the phone licks her and says, I'm your boyfriend now. To me, that was the moment that I felt, ah. 
we are now moving away from Michael Myers as the model and moving towards what we, I'm sure, will explore in the sequels as Freddy's the stand-up comedian. You and I know where it goes, Stuart, and I don't think that that was necessarily what was intended here. That line, I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy, yes, you could take it that way, but her reaction to it, her screaming, it wasn't the ha line. It was the I'm about to kill your boyfriend, you bitch line. Yeah, yeah. that's how I took it. Sure, sure. I, I only mean to imply that they're starting to move. The compass needle is now heading back in the other direction away from Michael Myers. I do feel like at first Halloween was some kind of blueprint for this movie, but maybe partly because Heather Langenkamp is no Jamie Lee Curtis, <laughs> or maybe because Freddy just is such an interesting character because he can manipulate dreams. Uh, they do move further and further away from the idea that uh, this is a story about a victim and more into this is a story about an awesome killer. All right. Well, let's let's go through this movie. It, we start with the glove scene and we talked about it. And then we go directly into Tina's dream. Tina is played by Amanda Wiss, who the only thing I've ever seen her in again was she played Woody's girlfriend on a few episodes of Cheers. She's Beth in Better Off Dead. She's the woman. That's, that's on- right. Yeah. She is. Yeah. Took, took me forever to figure out who this woman is. And I was like, oh, the first scene was interesting. She's running through a boiler room, and I couldn't understand why she was running through the boiler room. And I was thinking to myself, maybe later in the movie they explain it, and they do. But I really thought the scene was fun, though. I thought it was it really, again, for the first scene, it really got me interested in what was going on. So I thought it was effective. A lot of big iconography is introduced here. You know, claws cutting through the scrim, the furnace, yeah, the screeching of the claw, all that stuff. This is stuff that they will milk forever. The, the only thing really aberrant here is the sheep. I was like, why is there a sheep walking around in this boiler room? <laughs> Thank you. Yes, what is with the sheep? All I could think of with the sheep is there's the old joke about farmers fucking sheep. And so <laughs> is it that Tina's actual dream pre-Freddy manipulation is she was dreaming of sheep? Is it counting sheep? What is with the sheep? Counting sheep is what I guess. That's my counting association sheep. with sheep, yes. I thought it was she's the, the sheep being lured to slaughter. I thought it was a symbolism thing. Well, there we go. We have complete disagreement. <laughs> yeah, everything but the sheep will play out again and again. And, and I don't know if they knew that, but he's really set a fertile ground for which to milk the franchise right off the bat. And the way at the end of the dream, he just pops up right behind her and has her. And then it's a dream. If you were seeing this movie for the first time, I mean, you think you're seeing a first kill. And what I like about this this may be, and I, I'm a fan, so maybe I'm biased, and you guys can argue against me, but I think this may be the best, or at least one of the best, horror movie openings ever, because unlike Friday the 13th, where it starts with kind of an ambiguous kill, or unlike some horror movies, which, God forbid, it spends a good 30 minutes of character setup before we get to the action, here, we have an instant reason to be scared, an instant villain place and we also have a character who escaped the first attack who is going on to tell people about the attack and thus it's not the drew barrymore situation from scream where drew is killed right off the bat you know i find that opening scene of scream to be incredibly effective 
And for me, if we're counting all the horror films that I've seen, I think the one in screen with Drew Barrymore, every time you watch it, is just creepy. I, it's just, it really worked. This opening scene was very good. My vote's for screen. I'm not willing to weigh in if it's the best. I'll tell you one thing that it did do for me. If I hadn't seen this movie before and I didn't know Heather Langenkamp was the star, I would automatically assume that Tina was the star. Yes. And thus, I would be completely shocked when 20 minutes later, Tina is taken out. That would have blown my mind. I completely agree with you. When she died, I thought it, they were doing a play on Psycho, you know, trying to screw with our heads. But mm-hmm. then, it clearly, then it clearly became about Heather Lankin. Yep. And then we're introduced to our quartet of characters who have no other friends but each other. Yes. And because they're so awful. Can I just say that this dialogue is worse than razor blades? I would rather hear the knives on the pipes than to hear this dialogue. I mean, it was agonizing. I hated these guys. (laughs) I told you guys I saw this movie for the first time on home video, and it's how I've experienced this movie my whole life. Until a few years ago, where for the 20th anniversary, they put it back in theaters. And I went, and I'm now watching this movie for the first time in a completely enclosed environment, like only a movie theater can provide. And it was the first time I realized how horrid every performance in this movie is, with the possible exception of Robert Englund and John Saxon. But my wife and I were just dying with laughter at some of these line readings and deliveries. It is Mm. just abysmal acting in this. It's painful. It's painful. The first time I watched this movie all those years ago, I laughed almost the entire movie. And I had a lot of fun watching it, but it was laughable and took away a little bit from this time I I enjoyed it more on, on different levels. But back then I just found myself couldn't believe what I was watching. And we know this about horror movies, particularly low-budget ones. They always have flatly written, badly acted, they're existing to be murdered teenagers who screw and do drugs and all of this. But even on those standards, it does make you really inclined to want Freddy to work his fingers. Because <laughs> I just... I don't want them to live. Even Johnny Depp. Yeah, no, and I'm <laughs> yeah. a Johnny Depp fan, but, you know, he's a preppy in this. I'm like, this is the first and only time that I would ever think of Johnny Depp as preppy and fitting in. Like, he's always the outsider. I'm like, in what world is he, like, the average guy? It just He was the football player. Yeah, well, he wore a football midriff, at least. Yeah, what was that? <laughs> It was the 80s. <laughs> so Nancy and Glenn stay over at Tina's. Rod, Tina's ex-boyfriend, shows up. Hot sex ensues. And then Tina falls asleep, and we get to our second nightmare of the movie, which ends in Tina's death. And that is another really great build, I think. I love how it starts with just the pebbles at the window. And then she you know, goes out there. Why does she go out there? Why doesn't she get one of the multiple men in the house to go out there? Or at least put on pants. I I the same thing. Why don't you put on some pants? If someone's calling my name in a creepy voice from outside, I put Mm. pants on first, and then I go find out what's going on. Yeah, whoever they are, they want to see me in pants. I know that. (laughs) I have to say, I absolutely loved this kill. As Arnie said, it builds up slowly. And the wonderful special effect from Fred Astaire and Lionel Richie with dancing on the ceiling kind of thing, it worked completely. As soon as she body floats and she's on the ceiling, the whole scene works great. And when she falls on the floor in a crumpled mass of blood and body and bag of bones, the whole thing worked. The kill was fantastic. It was just brilliantly done. I had a great time with that. You know, here's where my horror history bumps up with me. I I can't agree with your total enthusiasm on this. 
uh, a lot of the imagery felt like stuff I had seen taken from other things. For example, when Nancy is falling asleep in another part of the room, the wall bulges out and these hands come out. And I'm like, okay, that's Videodrome, which is probably my favorite David Cronenberg movie. And there's just so many references from other movies. Her being dragged across the ceiling, all I could think about was Poltergeist and how Joe Beth Williams was yanked across the ceiling. I just felt like there were so many movies of that era just a couple of years before that Craven was cherry picking for the best stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. He's got good taste. These are some very vivid, evocative imagery. It looks great. But as a student of horror, as someone that saw just about every horror movie from 1970 to 1989, I'm, I'm willing to call him out. Master of Horror, you stole all of that. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. I got to say, though, it was very effective. There's only a couple things that bother me with this scene, and it's all about bad prosthetics. There's the one scene where when the four claws just come out of nowhere, you don't see anything cutting her. It always looked like a bad prosthetic. Oh, I thought that was neat. I mean, yes, it looked a little bit bad, but on the other hand, I thought the idea was great. The effect was good. The idea was wonderful, and I yeah. love that, and I go with it every time. However, yeah. even 12-year-old me wasn't scared because I'm like, well, that looks a little fake. All right. That might be my whole review for the movie is the idea of it is great. The execution, uh, you know, yeah, I definitely think if you watch horror movies with the eye of a gorehound, you're going to be a little underwhelmed with this episode. That A lot of the visual effects are hokey. They didn't have the budget. They're going to get the budget. It definitely, as I recall, gets more uh, grisly and, and more real. I think the effects work best here when it's implied violence and not the splatter. Like, am I wrong, but was that a midget? And then they used some optical <laughs> trick to make him look bigger? It was how, fun was, how fun was that? I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a midget. I, it was the only guy they could find, and he was like a foot and a half shorter than Robert Englund. Oh, yeah, but but the way he moves, it looks like he grows, and he's already got long hands. I mean, it's it works. I mean, I think when they're doing those kind of effects, it's a lot of fun. When she's sliding along the ceiling, even though it's a ripoff, I'm having fun. Yeah, when you're actually seeing claws and slashes and all of that, eh, they know they don't have the budget for it this time. You mentioned the big arms, yeah. and that was another thing I always had a problem with because it just looks like giant balloons because they even <laughs> sag in the middle. It didn't look like arms to me. It looked like somebody had balloon puppets in their sleeves. I didn't get that. I was, I was going to ask you since you said you listened to the commentaries if they actually explain why he has those oblong arms. Is it a cutscene or something or just no, something? No, it's just he's able to shapeshift. He cuts off his own fingers. He slices himself. He extends himself. He even shape changes if you remember a little later in the movie he becomes the hall monitor he's able to become anything and everything and this is what they had the budget to do is you're in a big alley there's only one guy but you still can't get around him because he can deform himself yeah that was amusing to me too when he cuts off his his other fingers with his razor fingers and he's laughing he's, that's the psych moment that's the moment where you let the person know I'm so fucking crazy you better be scared and that is the <laughs> moment where I started to feel like yeah this is Freddy. This is the Freddy as he will become, is the guy that just is trying to psych you out. It's all a joke to Freddy. So Tina dies, and the boyfriend is on the run, Rod. It's like a porn star name. What's his name? It's like Rod Lane. Yes, Rod Lane. <laughs> it's on the lane. 
It's on the run. And he's so stupid, he doesn't even get rid of his switchblade, which I don't even know why he has a switchblade. He's so stupid. I can understand Tina going out without pants in the dream, but Rod never gets shoes. (laughs) He's on the run for like overnight. And then the next day he gets Nancy for help and he's running around the street with no shoes on. The first time we meet him, he pulls that knife on Johnny Depp out of the blue. And so I think they're doing that so it looks like, you know, they have a reason to believe he is the killer of Tina. But I found that all so weird. Yeah, why wouldn't he ditch the knife? Why is he still around? It doesn't make much sense. Well, you got to think about it. Even though he's probably really 30 when this was filmed or something because he looks way older. (laughs) If you're going under the assumption that he's like 15, 16, you know, where is he going to run to? He can't exactly go to Mexico. You know, (laughs) he's got to stay on the lamb and try to figure it out. And I remember in the 80s, there were two things that were scarier than anything, and they were switchblades and throwing stars. Switchblades were big. I don't know whether it was like a Colombian drug lord thing, but I felt like every movie with a drug guy always pulled out, uh, you know, even beat it, Michael Jackson. Like <laughs> there was always the switchblade popping out. Like that was the weapon of choice. It was better than a gun. I don't know why. I defy you get the craziest motherfucker out of jail and give him a switchblade. He would not be able to do it to that blonde chick, what done to her. But I guess it's easy enough to blame him because who else could have done it, right? He was right you there. Know, locked in the room with her. Circumstantial, the, the trial would have come later, whatever. All right. <laughs> and we're and here's the crazy thing. Nancy goes to school. <laughs> the next day. School is happening, and Nancy goes. I'm like, these are some people that believe in education, (laughs) because who goes to school after you watch your best friend get mauled, flying in the air, and her boyfriend nabbed by the cops, thanks to you? On the plus side, at least the script calls itself out on it, because both her mother and her father say, what the hell are you going to school for? (laughs) It's like, she's just such a good girl. My best friend died, but I can't miss English class. We're doing Hamlet, you know. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so they can throw some obscure line about dreams in there. Whatever. The teacher there, did you guys recognize her? No. no. Her name is Lynn Shay, little sister of Bob Shay, who owned New Line and produced this film. You might have seen her in such movies as There's Something About Mary as Magda or Kingpin as the Landlord. Dumb and Dumber and Dumb and Dumber-er. She's in so many movies these days as like the dirty old lady. So there you go, Lynn Shay fans. Here's your shining moment. She was awesome. Awesome. Anyway, it's no, it's so that they can do their next iconic dream moment, which I got to say might be my favorite. Tina comes back in a bloody body bag and Nancy, without realizing it, has fallen asleep in her desk. And this bloody body bag is running down the hall. And then you got to love the hall monitor wearing the Freddy sweater and, and having the glove. It's the first time we get the real sense that he's a shapeshifter. It ends up in the boiler room. She's cornered. We think that she might get it. And she burns herself awake. And I got to say, that is one of the most clever ideas of the movie. The idea that she could injure herself and make herself wake up, and yet she would still have the burn. There was a belief. I don't know if it was an urban myth. I don't know who told me this. Arnie, I'm pretty sure you and I talked about this on the playground. There was a perception that if you really died in your dream, 
you would die in reality. Oh, yeah. That is the hugest, I dare say, urban legend. Nobody's ever been able to disprove it, to my knowledge. To this day, I'll have dreams where I am, like, about to die. I get Mm -hmm. in a car wreck and my life is over or somebody shoots me in my dreams. I have very violent dreams. It's because I saw Friday the 13th when I was seven. And (laughs) I I wake up right before I die. But, yes, it it has been commonly believed among us that (laughs) – that is the case. And in fact, where Wes Craven got this idea is because a bunch of teenagers were dying in their sleep and having terrible nightmares in real life. And it was in the newspaper that these kids had bad dreams, told their parents, I'm having really bad dreams. I can't sleep. They tried to take coffee and everything. And fi- the parents finally gave them sleeping pills and the kids died just with no apparent cause of death. So you're yeah, telling me it was ripped from today's headlines? Back then, a bit, yeah. <laughs> kind of like spontaneous combustion. I don't think there was anybody in the LA Times who went flying across a bloody ceiling, but <laughs> that, that you know of. That I know of. Yes. Now, back to the hallway sequence, that is a very cool sequence, though, because, again, it really evokes the dreamlike imagery because in a dream, you know, things are slightly askew. You can have this woman just start bleeding in the hall with leaves everywhere everywhere and the body bag and you don't question it in a dream i liked that it really kind of more so than the sequels captured the fact that in a dream things are just a little bit different and yet you act completely like it's normal yeah they're the hallmarks of probably any nightmare movie are those moments where you're going from reality into dream and you're not sure it's kind of like a uh, dolly painting with it with a we see a real landscape but it's kind of woozy and sliding and just realizing all of a sudden that we're not in kansas anymore that we really have stepped into the dream world that's always fun and that moment comes right as the hall monitor wriggles her her razor talon fingers and says no running in the halls it's a lot it's a lot of fun and they just do such a good job in this movie and, and maybe in every movie with those moments those are why you watch nightmare on elm street that said i really really at this point wanted heather langenkamp fired <laughs> You know, I, I've made my case about really wanting to identify with victims in horror movies and really wanting to be with them in their struggles. But here, if Sigourney Weaver is my high watermark for a heroine in peril in a horror franchise, she might be the sludge in the septic tank at the very bottom. Like, I hated this performance. I hated this <laughs> character. And I really, really did not care whether she lived or died. I'm not going to go that far. I, I'm going to spoil something for the future installments right now. This actress never gets any better, ever, in her life. I've seen her, <laughs> you know, even on that TV show, Just the yeah, Ten of Us. Yeah. She had a sitcom. I couldn't remember the name of it, but, like, I remember she was bad on a sitcom. And if you're bad on a sitcom, there's no hope. Yeah. And in that sitcom, <laughs> she played the sister of one of the victims from Part 4, too. But she is a terrible actress, but that's it. I don't think she's as bad as you're making her out to be. No, she is. She's bad when she's trying to be conversational. I think she does pretty well in action scenes. I think she can do anger and she can do rage. And I like the character of Nancy. I do. In spite of Heather's performance here. 
and eh, sorry, penalty box. She sucks. I mean, she's yeah. terrible. And she plays anger very well because that's one of the two things she plays in this movie. That's all she does. And I don't like her at all in this movie. And she really drags it down. And she makes it hard to watch some of the scenes, honestly. I'm not wishing for her to die, as Stuart said in the movie, because I realized that she was the lead character. But on the other hand, I'm not rooting for her to live either. I don't associate with her at all. Her anger is unfocused. I mean, she'll go to the jailhouse to confront Rod and... <laughs> And then, like, everything that he tells her, like, she refutes. I'm like, you either believe him or you think he killed your best friend and you want him to fry. She was always fighting with everyone around her, her parents and all of that. And it's it's her fault. I mean, most of those people are trying to help her. I just felt like she was her worst enemy, really. And there's the scene where she's, like, talking to Johnny Depp. And there's a line there that when I first saw this movie, I just completely went with it. Now it stabs me in the gut. She, like, looks in the mirror and goes, oh, God. I look 20 years old. Yes. And I'm like, when I was 12, I'm like, yeah, that's old. And now I'm like, oh boy, I used to think that was old. <laughs> Why wouldn't she say 40? Why wouldn't she say like 30? I know. 20 years old. I know. And with the fact that she was 19 when filming. <laughs> there you go. That's why she looked 20. <laughs> But the bathtub scene is great. It's another yeah. iconic moment. Razor blades between the legs and her being pulled under and it having to be a whole ocean instead of a bathtub. All that stuff is great and really what the series is known for and what it does best. But, I mean, come on. The razor glove going up between the legs, you know, <laughs> like attacking the vagina, you know. It's like, wow. And it, it's another phobia. I mean, even if your, you know, genital mutilation doesn't do it for you. <laughs> I used to be afraid <laughs> of falling asleep in the tub because when I was growing up, for some reason, I never took showers. I always took baths. And after this movie, I was like, can you really fall asleep and drown? And, and you know, of course, I had a mean older brother who was like, sure. <laughs> So, like, this movie really warped me there. I'm just like, oh, I don't want to, because you'd wake up in the morning, you wouldn't be totally awake, and you'd take a bath, and, like, I don't know, it screwed with my head. This one, in some ways, was the scariest moment, at least when I was watching it originally in 1985. And then she and Johnny Depp team up and to, for her to go into a dream. Yes, she's mad at him for not staying awake, and yet he's in the dream with her when you know that... He's fallen asleep, too. You, I mean, you know what I took that as, actually? You ever have a dream where, like, your alarm clock goes off in it and you somehow your subconscious merges that alarm clock sound into the dream? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, sure. I, I kind of thought he was awake at that point and speaking to her sleeping body. And, you know, his popping out from behind a bush was her subconscious merging that into the dream. I didn't think he was asleep and, you know, jumped into her dream world or anything. I just thought he was awakened in the room. It's a little nebulous. And it's hope I hope I, I feel like they hadn't quite figured out the rules here. You know, how dream interplays with reality. They were still trying to figure that out in this movie. And I hope it's something that, again, that the new movie can do. That's one of those things I want them to really set the boundaries properly for when we reboot. So you talk about Rod's death choking. And this is where we start to see Freddy is not going to kill everyone the same way. He's going to start getting inventive with his death. And when watching it this time, for the first time, I had a question that came to me. He chokes Rod because Rod's alone in the jail cell. If he'd slashed Rod up with his glove, then everybody would know, well, what the hell's going on? because he was alone in a jail cell, right? But why does Freddy care if people think it's 
plausible how Rod died. It's not like the police can come into the dreamland and arrest him. <laughs> he does seem to be wanting to work in the shadows and that only the kids know about it. He doesn't want to tip his hat that he's back, which is seems a little strange to me because really uh, we're going to find out what he wants is vengeance specifically on the parents that burned him, correct? I mean, he's targeted the children of the people that killed him and yes. only him. Yes. At this point. Yeah, I would I would flaunt that. We've all seen Freddy versus Jason. In right. that one, he's carving messages in people's bodies. Exactly. That says Freddy's back. In this yeah. one, he's like, well, I'll have to just make it look like a suicide. <laughs> yeah, the modest <laughs> Freddy. I don't know. It doesn't really suit him. It doesn't really well, suit him. So we go to Rod's funeral. and. Yeah. <laughs> it has to be the worst funeral ever. Fire <laughs> him. After you fired Heather Langenkamp, fire that priest. <laughs> well, I want to know, at what funeral are the comforting words, as the Bible says, he who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. <laughs> it's like, well, he deserved it. <laughs> worst eulogy ever. Yeah, I know. It was shocking. I mean, I terrible. Like, you're just, you're gone. But then, as comforting, he's like, but let's not judge lest we be judged. The dude, why'd you bring it up? <laughs> yeah, there's no back backpedaling on that comment. And then we go to the dream clinic. We start adding some science to the fantasy. Okay, all right. I can't wait to get into this because... So, you are a parent. Your child is showing aberrant dreams. Her friends are dropping dead. You take her to a dream clinic... Run by Roger Rabbit, who has a poster of a cat riding on a trolley in the background and describes – by the way, this is the Springwood Dream Clinic, a small-town dream clinic because every town has got to have one. He describes <laughs> dreams as, quote, mysteries, incredible body, hocus-pocus. You're going to let this man do anything to you? I'd be like, is this the front for a headshot? Because you'd be crazy. <laughs> Come on. And then, they, I mean, how does a place like this get funding? I mean, I just, I don't understand. They, they take walk-ups like this girl could just walk in and say, hey, I've been having a, a dream of being slashed up. And could you just could you see what's going on there? Oh, sure. No. And then she pulls a hat magically from the air and it's bleeding. And they let her go. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> really? But come on. I mean, if if they don't know what dreams are, if they've got no... I mean, all I got to say is, would you go to a dentist that said, teeth, the magical stones of life that pop from the gums? <laughs> Wait, what? No, I need for you to know every one of my teeth, motherfucker. Everyone. No mysteries. <laughs> pocus, pocus. I'll tell you what, that was the silliest scene in the whole movie, and I really probably should have been cut. And, you know, you talk about the 80s. Nothing screamed more 80s to me than in the dream clinic, talking to the doctor, Nancy's mom just lights up. <laughs> I didn't notice that, but you're right. The mom's hilarious. She's Ronnie Blakely. I think I've only ever seen her. She was in a 70s movie called Nashville where she played an out-of-it country star, and she was actually effective in that. But in this movie... She got nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And she was so right for it, but she's playing the exact same character here, and it makes no sense. It's kind of like when I saw Sean Young in Blade Runner. I'm like, wow, she's got no emotions. She just really nails this robot, and then you see her in every other movie, and you're like, oh, no, she's a terrible actress. <laughs> they say it in the commentary and it just sums up my feelings about Ronnie Blakely in this movie is what movie is she in? Because she's not in the same movie as every other actor. She's still in Nashville. 
<laughs> so Nancy pulls the hat out of the dream. Ta-da! And we set up, you know, the climax of the movie with this. Did you guys roll with that development? No, but I rolled on the floor when I saw that Freddy Krueger stitched his name into the hat. Yeah, I'm like, is, why? Is he that is, special? <laughs> what is that? I mean, a masked murderer puts his name in his hat. His underwear have his name in it, too. I mean, I don't understand. Everyone has the same hat where, you know, so therefore he has to make sure that he has his name in it. Nah. But, you know, yes. <laughs> Was it cool that it, she pulled something from the dream? It certainly sets up where they're going with the ending, with the idea that if you don't deal with what's going on in your dreams, it will manifest itself as a real problem. And, well, let's get there before I weigh in on that. Can I just say that I hate the fact that they had to demonize the parents that they do? And I know that's a theme of this whole series, that the parents are part of the problem and that because they don't understand or respect their kids, that it leads them into Freddy's traps. But I got to say, they're really not all bad here. I mean, let's think about this. There is a mass murderer in their neighborhood who has killed 20 kids and the law gets him off. And these people get it together to burn him up. They're not wrong in that. That's That was the right decision there. If this man has killed 20 children and their child could be next, the fact that they burn him up, I, I endorse that kind of vigilantism. I mean, if, if they can't convict him, then... That's not so bad. Now, I don't know how Ronnie Blakely was able to pull it together because she's drunk off her ass the whole movie. <laughs> but I totally think that's not so bad. And who who would to know that Freddy Krueger could come back in a dream and, and get vengeance? I mean, I just feel like the parents really weren't the bad guys here. Let me put a little context to this. Wes Craven is a baby boomer. And to baby boomers, the worst people in the world were the generation before them. And to us, the worst people in the world are the baby boomers. It's cyclical. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so this movie was made for teenagers. You know, when I was in my teen years, you know, even though I shouldn't be watching rated R movies, I was the target audience for this. And the fact is, it's about, you know, how baby boomers feel like they inherited all the bad things that the generation before them did. Here, you have this being told, this baby boomer angst is personified in Nancy because it's literally the sins of the parents that are causing Nancy and her friends to die. I really think it's a generational thing, and it is something that comes back again and again, is the parents don't know, and the children know, and it's about how becoming an adult and taking control of your own destiny, and I I do think it's because of Wes Craven's generation. This was a theme in a lot of fiction back then. It's not too hard to get to teenagers to say their parents are horrible people. I mean, I get that, but this goes to some comic extremes here where the the woman literally bars her child in, puts bars on the windows, locks her in, prevents her from getting out, becomes immobilized with drink. Even after the child is explained that Freddy Krueger is in her dreams, she is not being understanding. I mean, I guess she pulls out his old accoutrements and says, see, he's dead. I killed him. Isn't that the most wonderful comforting line? He can't hurt you. He's dead because mommy killed him (laughs) and now i'm locked in with mommy i'm i'm still i'm still scared i'm still scared well Stuart, i thought that the mother was drinking the whole movie because the guilt of killing this guy was getting to her which is what i took 
be. I mean, that's how I read it, too, is that, you know, the separation, the drinking, it's implied in this movie and others that Freddy didn't kill teenagers. Freddy killed little girls. And so I assume he died, you know, in the 70s, you know, a decade before. And in that time, it is look at what it's done to these parents. Obviously, Tina's mother is single. Nancy's parents are divorced. Glenn's parents are a couple of douchebags. And we Rod doesn't have parents. Glenn's yeah. parents are really, really old. And drink beer and hang up on Nancy when she's trying to help. Yeah, I just felt like the whole, if these parents ganged up to help their children, I just can't totally accept the fact that they would be so awful to them and not... I don't know. It just you hear what I'm saying, right? I, I don't think that if they burned people alive, they're the type of parents who will put you in timeout. I definitely think they're spankers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, they're checked out here. They're totally zoned out, and that's what I don't buy, is that they wouldn't be active participants in their child's life. They'd be throwing that in your face. Hey, I burned a man alive for you. You don't talk <laughs> back to me. <laughs> yeah, but how much power would that give you over your parents? We all went through that teenage jags. You let me stay out to one or I'll call the cops on your murder (laughs) and the cop was in on it though yeah the cop was in on it what could you do i think the next scene is johnny depp right yeah depp tries to come in there and by the way i just want to say that scene was shot blocks from away from where i live that's in venice that's the venice canals that bridge is actually over a whole waterways that was modeled after venice italy so seeing it in springwood whatever town that is it totally threw me for a loop Yeah, this is obviously supposed to be the Midwest. Later on, it's said that this town is Springwood, Ohio, and all these movies take place in Springwood, Ohio. Mm. But that scene bothers me because right there in the background is quite obviously a palm tree. There's a lot of palm trees in here. (laughs) And before I moved to L.A., I lived in Springfield, Illinois. I could almost believe that Springwood was just like Springfield. But watching it now, I'm just like, this is totally L.A. You totally. I do like that they it was a slow burn before he got killed. They they took their time there before he actually dies. When he has some stuff with his mom and stuff with girlfriend across the street, the whole thing. They really built up to his death, which was was good. I thought that was fine. I'm not we can talk about the death in a second, but the build up to it was was a nice nice way to do it. What I like about the death, though, is you've got this buildup, but really, after seeing Nancy chased again and again and again, and seeing Tina chased, and seeing Rod stalked and strangled, it's so refreshing that finally Freddy just is like, fuck you, dead. I want to kick around Craven just a little bit at this moment. Like, if you wanted to make this scene scary, it would have been easy to do. Him, Johnny Depp being sucked into the bed and a you know, tidal wave of blood shooting out of it, gushing up onto the ceiling. It works. It's a little reminiscent of The Shining, but hey, whatever. But he doesn't just get sucked in the bed. The turntable and the TV get sucked in too. And that's where I just feel like, really? You're going to have the man, like, be sucked in with his appliances. He's, he's sleeping with them. I mean, uh, the, the whole character was weird. I guess it was supposed to be his character trait. He made you know, prank phone calls with the tape and all of that stuff. It just I'm not sure why they would choose to stage what would otherwise be a very gory, evocative scene with jokes like that. I, I agree with you. I also was waiting for him to pop out of the bed trying to like escape with his hands. 
or maybe his mm-hmm. head pop up and trying to, 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 to scrape the sheets to get out. He got sucked in and then spat out. It was like a geyser out of a of top of a whale almost, you know? It was like really a burst of and a lot, a lot of blood. That was amazing amount of blood and gore. More than the human body would have. We get this wonderful geyser of blood, and the MPAA actually gave it an X rating. Wes Craven had to go in and go, that wasn't just Glenn's blood. That was the blood of every Freddy Krueger victim ever, which is why there's so much of it. And then they said, okay, well, that explains it and gave it an R. And <laughs> okay. yeah, I know. It's like that, that makes a difference. Oh, the MPAA, whatever. Uh-huh. But I like that this, again, evoked the power of Freddy. Right now, Freddy is ruling this entire movie because you got to wonder if Freddy controls your dreams, how is it that people ever escape? Why is he toying with them? He should just, you know, kill and move on. But here you get to see Freddy dominant. I like that he's pulled in, Geyser comes up, immediately you're like, oh shit, there's no way Nancy can go up against this. I think the reason it feels weird is because it is Johnny Depp. If it had just been some unknown schmo, we wouldn't think another thing about Glenn. But the fact that this This is Johnny Depp's screen debut, and, you know, we associate him with giving big performances where we can't take our eyes off of him. And this one, we can't wait to get him off screen. (laughs) You're right. They just want to get to Nancy, and the problem is I don't really want, you know, Nancy to win. I'm not on her side, but for lack of a better heroine there she is essentially remaking the end you mentioned last house on the left didn't you kind of feel like this ending was totally like craven just doing that uh, that again she's booba trapping the house and trying to trap freddy and beat him at his own game i felt like that's exactly the plot and the setup of last house on the left I had seen Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time in 1987. I didn't see Last House on the Left until 2009. Mm. So, no, I never thought that until after I had watched this movie and I was reflecting on it. What I was thinking was, out of all the slasher movies I've ever seen, of which Nightmare on Elm Street counts, I don't think I've ever seen them have a hero. If you watch all of these Friday the 13th movies we see, the heroine is chased until the very end and maybe she's finally cornered and has to pick something up to save herself this is the first one where like nancy's going rambo and she gets her arming up scene where she's setting these traps she is a proactive character in a genre that does not really have proactive heroes and yes when i was thinking about later i'm like i was trying to think of any other horror movie where the victims became proactive and you know became to the level of their attacker and the only other one I could think of was, yes, Last House on the Left. Do you guys agree that Nancy's a powerful hero in this? No. (laughs) Is it because of the performance? I cannot agree. She's written to be, but she falls apart because of Heather Langenkamp. I completely agree with Stuart. It's, it's not anything to do with the script, the way it's written. It has something to do with the performance. At this point, I don't care about her at all. Staying in the booby traps is fine. She says, I need 20 minutes. Call me when I'm awake, all that kind of stuff, to wake me up. And she does an incredible amount in those 20 minutes, setting all these booby traps and all that kind of stuff. That took me out of it, too. So by the time Freddy comes out of dreamland into the real world to get beat up, I didn't care. So maybe what you're saying does have merit as written. But since I don't care about the character, I can't think of her as a hero. I'm thinking of her still as a victim because I'm waiting to see how Freddy is going to go after her. The character doesn't compel me to care about her. We also, we talked about the I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy, telephone gag. That's a lot of people's favorite scene. I've, again, never gone with it because of the really fake looking puppet phone. Yeah. Yeah. 
you got to grab the movie that they had no money and that they had to create these elaborate, fantastical imagery. They did the best with what they could. And I think we'll see some better effects down the road. And then I also had a problem with it also because she's awake at that point and she pulled the phone out of the wall and she gets another phone call and she hears the screeching nails over it the first time and then he's on the other line. How can she get a phone call from Freddy when he's still in Dream World, when she hasn't fallen asleep and pulled him back out, when she's supposed to be awake? Well, I kind of like that because it almost implies that she fell asleep without us seeing it. And that they, they play with that many times, I think, in the series. Uh, that one didn't bother me, but I didn't feel like Craven had control over it. I mean, sometimes I felt like he was doing that because it was smart, and sometimes I just felt like, well... We just need it to happen this way. Yeah. It's the big face-off. Freddy takes a few hits. You know, bombs are going off. I'm not sure how one book can turn the girl into uh, Rambo, as you say. But When I first saw this, I was with a group of friends. We were having an overnight. We watched both one and two. And when, when Nancy pulls him out of the dream and he's getting hit with the sledgehammer and she's, you know, making him fall down the stairs, my friends were cheering. They were loving this. I got two words for you. Beep, beep. Roadrunner. <laughs> I thought Home Alone, but okay. <laughs> so then Freddy gets set on fire and gains 50 pounds all at once. <laughs> and he walks hey. around on fire, and it takes a while for the basement stairs to actually catch. I thought everything was made of wood, but nothing caught on fire. But he's clearly wearing the, uh, the, the fire suit, right? That's what you're referring to, right? Can you blame? I'm a stuntman on a low-budget horror movie, and you want to burn me alive with me running around? Hell yes, I'm obese now. That's right. Freddy the fat motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I am not going to risk I'm going to pound on that flame retardant suit, because there's no way I'm going to allow myself to be burned for this little horror movie. Hey, this guy not only gets set on fire, but falls down a flight of stairs while on fire that's a stunt man i get i give him total props for that scene i don't i don't disparage him anything for looking like the stay puff marshmallow freddy <laughs> <laughs> and then she's calling to the cops and yeah there were some jokey lines here like she's screaming out the window and the cop on the other side is like everything's gonna be okay and then like she's screaming you can see freddy in the window he's like maybe i better get the lieutenant i mean those are some jokey <laughs> lines i i get a kick out of them the cops come you get the flaming footprints and then freddy kills the drunk mom what Wait. or something this is where the movie went off the rails like all of a sudden ronnie blakely's bed is glowing and dry ice is pouring out of it and she's sinking into it okay bye ronnie thanks for coming Actually, <laughs> let me know when you want to finish the movie because <laughs> <laughs> Because this has nothing to do with what we were doing, but all right. Stuart, actually, Ronnie Blakely isn't there. It's her animatronic stunt double who her arm moves very slowly up before she sinks slowly into the bed, a la the Haunted Mansion at Disney World. All I could think of was Aunt Peru. Aunt Peru? <laughs> okay. It was, you're right, it did very much feel like that Haunted Mansion ride. Yeah, you, you nailed that one. It was animatronic and weird, and, and we're just like, I, at this point, I couldn't, I couldn't connect with Nightmare on Elm Street. I was just like, I don't remember this ending this way. I remembered the ending with Freddy being burned because, of course, that's what happened before. And I remembered that being the end. I did not remember what happened next. And then, you know, Nancy ushers. She, they're all fine with it. <laughs> they're all like, eh, we didn't really like her anyway. <laughs> and she ushers the cops out who, of course, have no questions or follow up when they investigate or anything. Oh, floating, glowing bed, whatever. Lady gone. <laughs> well, keep in mind, she's been screaming this whole time 
time, it's Freddy, it's Freddy, it's Freddy, and her father didn't believe her, and now he's, like, seen him and knew it was Freddy at that moment. So he's trying to figure out how this motherfucker he killed 10 years ago is back. He's got bigger things on his brain than just the glowing bed. Yeah. So then let's get to the crux of it. So she tries to apply what Johnny Depp had uh, instructed her with the Balinese method of dealing with your dreams, she ushers them out so that she could deny Freddy's existence. Well, here's what basically this movie is, is this movie is a nightmare, not multiple nightmares, a nightmare on Elm Street. It is all Nancy's nightmare. And to end it, she has to just tell Freddy, I now realize everything has been a dream. This whole time has been a dream, which is why, you know, Brock, you're like, he's interfacing with the real world. We never see the real world in this movie. I hate that. And I reject that. I reject that. I'm sorry. I'm not saying you're wrong, Arnie. I'm saying that's wrong. They did that for a whole season in Dallas. It was the ending of the show. I mean, they just, the ratings plummeted after that. You can't dick people like that around. That's, no one wants to find out that they woke up and it was all a dream. That's frustrating. And I just, I don't know. It's like, it could be read as she's going to deny his existence, that she has become a dream warrior. Uh, I'll use the term early. And that she now has mastery over what she dreams. But she's not asleep unless you're implying that she was asleep this whole time. I believe that what this movie was saying, which is changed in the sequels, is she was asleep the whole time. And in fact, in the original draft, Wes Craven had a happy ending where she walks out and there's all her friends alive. She's woken up and the end. Which is kind of the ending, except then there's another spin. Yeah, but Wes Craven didn't want that other thing. Bob Shea, New Line guy, saw a sequel possibility here and so he forced Wes Craven against Wes Craven's will to put in that other thing the hook that there could be a sequel Wes Craven's original concept was it was all Nancy's dream Nancy woke up everybody's fine roll credits Okay, so can so we all agree Wes Craven was really wrong? <laughs> like, really wrong. Even Wes Craven's bank account has to admit that. Yeah. Well, well, well wait a second. Let's go, let's go back to the crux of this, because I, at the end of the movie, Arnie, I got that. I got what the movie was trying to say about she was dreaming the whole time. But up until that point, we didn't know that. So when all these things were going awry, was that supposed to be hints to me, the audience? Like, oh, the whole thing's a dream. Yep, I believe that was. That's bullshit. I'm watching this movie, and I love the idea. I love this concept. But then as the movie goes on, it keeps straying away from that original concept to give us this ending, and then they don't give you that ending. If they give you the ending that you said the original ending had, I'd be so much more happy with it. The fact that the, the convertible top pops open with Freddy's sweater pattern on it, and, the, and she gets sucked through the door at the end. What a great last scare kind of thing, like at the end of Friday the 13th, part one. But if they ended it as you originally said it would, then it would have paid off. But since they didn't end it that way, it's confusing, and it doesn't satisfy me, the viewer. And I think the concept of the movie is betrayed, because I love the idea of this movie, but then it's all mixed up. So I left unsatisfied with the ending of this movie. I just think it's hokey. All this time you've seen a killer slashing and doing all these fantastical kills, and then someone can go, I don't believe in you anymore, and poof, they're gone. That's wimpy. That's just, I, I don't believe that you can fight fire with 
you know, wishful thinking. I think that that is just a cop out. It's a cop out. And I actually do like the last scene. I wish she didn't get pulled through the door. That's the one beat that I wish didn't happen. But I love the top coming down, her being dragged away, the girls jumping rope. All of that stuff is great. I'm not, I never care about Ronnie Blakely, so I don't care whether she lives or dies. Seeing her get pulled through the window of the door was just kind of bizarre. But uh, it, it ended on the right note. That was the ending to do. Craven was wrong. It should not have been, I woke up and it was all a dream and I'm going on with my happy high school existence. I mean, mm-hmm. it could work there, but with the pulling through the door, thing, I don't, I mean, I, at that point, I'm so unhappy anyway, but I do like the image of the ragtop with the sweater and the kids screaming in the car and the jumping rope kids. I agree with that. That imagery is great. And so it's, 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 a, it's a fun way to end the movie. It's really a fun way to end it. Here's what's funny is I'm the biggest fan of this movie of the three of us, and I don't like the ragtop with the green lines hastily painted on it. I think it looks sloppy and kind of klutzy. I think, it, you know, again, it goes back to budget and whatnot. But I, the whole end scene, while I like the fact that it's a nice little ending scare and, you know, it's great because you want to walk out of a theater from a horror movie afraid. You do not want the killer to be totally vanquished you want to have some lingering fear from this movie and the fact that the killer's still out there and now if you go to sleep you could have the dream a la fresh prince is wonderful but the execution of this entire final scene from ronnie blakely sears store mannequin getting pulled through a window to the ragtop with the badly painted lines it just never quite worked for me we could just go along with the end a rock song it's a nightmare it's, it's just, just a, a dream, dream. dream. <laughs> I love that song. I don't know. Oh, what. it's awful. It's awful. <laughs> I have it on my iPod. Oh, my God. But you know what? Nightmare has always pulled out some wretched, wretched music. It's not going to be the first end theme song that makes me just want to scream. But it was awful. Uh, we will get to some music. But yeah. first, I, I think this is a good place to wrap it up. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend A Nightmare on Elm Street? Stuart. You know... This is a weird one. If someone were coming to me and said, I want to watch a horror movie, the answer is a definitive no. I don't think Nightmare on the Street is a good horror movie, but it's got some great ideas and it's got real possibilities as a reboot and is so entrenched in slasher culture as a historical piece, as a nostalgia piece, it would be just as hard for me to dismiss it. So I will spritz on a recommendation. I will say just barely yes. But not because it's scary, not because Craven made a scary movie, but because he made an iconic character and that it's fun to see the origins of that iconic character. Arnie. Absolutely, I recommend this. Now, as I said, I saw this in theaters and really had a hard time watching it. The performances are dreadful. And when I was forced to pay 100% attention to this movie for perhaps the first time in my life, not having any distractions because I'm in a dark theater... It really hit home that this movie wasn't the masterpiece that I had thought it was for almost 20 years. I really had thought this, perhaps not the best of the series, but a great, great movie. And seeing it on the big screen, I had to come to the realization that this movie isn't great. And I was kind of afraid to watch it again for this. This was my first time seeing this movie since seeing it in theaters back in 2004. And I I was a little nervous coming at it. And... Watching it again, I expected to perhaps like it even less. I liked it more again. I paid attention, and on a small screen, those bad performances... 
aren't as ruinous as they are on a big screen and Mm. how I know this movie is on a small screen. I think that when I was young and still able to be scared by movies, yes, this scared me. I think it has some wonderful imagery and just what a great idea about dreams being a place that, you know, it's so unavoidable. You have to sleep. And the great line, whatever you do, don't fall asleep. You know, it's it's so wonderful. And, you know, I saw this when I was almost a teenager and I was a big fan of it through my teenage years. I believe this encapsulates a lot of a teenage feeling. And so I don't think that if you're watching this for the first time in your 30s or 40s or so, you're going to get it the way you would if you saw it when you were a teenager or a near teenager and able to relate to these characters. But despite the flaws of the budget and the flaws of the atrocious acting, the only person who's acting I just cannot get past is Ronnie Blakely. Just god-awful. But it's a great movie. It's got great imagery, great kills, I think my favorite kills at the beginning, just the chase sequences. The movie just books along. It never slows down. Even during the fighting with the mother scene, there's not a lull in this movie. It entertains me for the entire 90 minutes, and it engrosses me every time I watch. High, high recommendation. And I'm I'm with Stuart on this one. First time I saw it, I was 18 years old. I watched it when I rented it, as I told you before, and I did not associate with these characters at all. And I was the age or near the age of these characters. Second time I watched it was for this podcast. And this is not a great movie, but there's so many great moments in this movie. There are that's a great character of Freddy that I loved a lot of the kills. We come to horror movies to watch these kinds of kills and this delivered. The concept is wonderful. I, I, so I have a lot of good things to say about this movie, but overall, the movie isn't really all that good, especially because of the performances being across the board not all that great. I don't mind the low budget if you do something clever with it, if you show us that you can do things clever with it and use what you have to the best of your ability, like the first Friday the 13th. They did what they could with what they had, same with the Halloween, the first Halloween. Look what happened there, you know? So I'm going to give it a weak recommendation because although I have a lot of problems with this movie and I don't think it's all that good a movie, there's enough here for if you're looking for a horror movie to watch, you can do worse than watch this movie. This movie has enough going for it in concept, in Freddy Krueger, and in, in intrigue about what's going on at the beginning, this and that, to really have a good time watching it. You can have a good time watching this movie. But I really have high hopes for the sequels getting the concept down better and expanding on it because if it's all of them are like this, I'm not sure how how am I going to enjoy the series. So good idea, poor execution. So it's it's a weak recommendation for me. So now Stuart mentioned how Freddy becomes a jokester and a stand-up comedian. There's something that I actually own that I stumbled across while cleaning my basement just a few weeks ago, and I decided that we're going to add a little something to this retrospective series of Now Playing. How fun! Okay. Freddy goes from this little slasher film to being such an icon, recognizable. He leads parades. He shows up on talk shows, you know, and a lot of that happened 
after A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. And we're going to talk a lot about that in a couple more podcasts. But right after A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, the merchandising of Freddy really hit stride. There was a video game for the PC. And that was around the time that Dawkins' Dream Warrior song was on MTV. And you could see Freddy in a video. Somebody got the idea that Freddy needed to sing. <gasps> yes! <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And I I I really <laughs> just couldn't believe it. Uh, and it's called Freddy's Greatest Hits. And I'm sure that when oh. people paid for this, they're expecting they're gonna get that it's a nightmare. It's just a dream, dream. And dream warriors, right? I mean, it's his greatest hits. No, mm-hmm. it is Freddy and the Elm Street singers. <laughs> yes and he does a mixture uh, there's three types of songs on this album there are rock and roll standards Mm. there's original pop synth songs and then there's like a mood music track (laughs) okay and robert england as freddie is one of the main singers aided by some poor studio musician who probably never worked again but got oh. a nice fat paycheck, so probably isn't complaining. I don't know if you'd call it a fat paycheck. Maybe scale? Do musicians have scale? No doubt they overexploited him, but this is this definitely sounds like Freddie jumped a whole school of sharks here. This is, <laughs> this is incredibly poor decision making. If you wanted to keep Freddie remotely scary, why would you ever give him a microphone? That's crazy. This was right after part three, and so it's uh-huh. early on. You know, it's mm-hmm. it, it's when Freddie first had his first wide release because part one and part two opened small. Like we just said, New Line was a starting company. This was right after part three, and I'm I'm going to talk a lot more about the merchandising of Freddie when we get to the part three. But yeah, it just so happens there's nine tracks on this record, and we're doing nine podcasts. No. So I'm going to play in each of these podcasts a song for Stuart and Brock and let you guys <laughs> listen as they hear Freddie and the Elm Street group. <laughs> I would want I'm, nothing more. Thank you. I, I, I'm, I'm so happy right now. I like this makes sitting through the movie worth it. I mean, I think this could be better than the movie. So what do you get a Wookiee when he already has a comb? That comes <laughs> This first song, track one on the album, is called Do the Freddy. Like the locomotion? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, gosh. Oh. So are you guys ready to do the Freddy? All right, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Do the Freddy. (laughs) 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 I'm ready, and this is for you. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> yes, this is for you. <laughs> oh, I'm like Rick Astley there for a second. <laughs> this is the start of an album, and you know you're in for a treat. <gasps> when you think of Freddy, don't you think of upbeat little pop songs? Make your feet up, swing. Oh gosh. You gotta 
Robert England is thinking. Do you think it's Robert England? Are we sure? Robert England's doing the laughing. This, they could have just cut it from the movie, right? Like, yeah. he wasn't in there with the headphones singing into it like the other world. Yeah, he was. Really? No, wait a minute. This Do the Freddy is a real song. This is, an, this is one of the pop standards that they've done here. Yeah, because, you know what? I used to have to do road trips with my parents. And we would argue the whole time. They would want to listen to their old music, and every time a stupid song like this on, I would hold it up and go, "This is why you people." You should have played of the Freddy version. So there's a real Freddy dance. Yeah, that, I'm confused. I'm trying to figure out. Dance. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out if I'm supposed to raise my hands and tilt my head. I don't really understand how to do the actual dance. No, they they didn't change the words. This is the real Freddy. Yeah, oh, this I is see. from a Freddy. group called like Freddy and the Somethings, and he moved awkwardly on the stage. And this was back in the fifties, and that was the Freddy. It's kind of like the fifties version of the Humpty Dance. Yeah, well, could they have thrown in "Slash a bitch right there" and <laughs> then pull back your hair? I mean, I don't know. Like, spice it up a little. If you're doing a song with Freddy Krueger, you got to give me more than laugh clips. <laughs> yeah. Stab you in the gut and then throw your butt to the Freddy. Yeah, it would be kind of a fun dance. I don't see it catching on in the clubs, but I, I yeah, calling this the Freddy as in the Freddy Krueger. Well, I hope the other eight songs are better. Yeah, honestly, what, where's the line about burning up the dance floor, you know, or something <laughs> like that? Be a little clever about it. Oh, that was know. not very good. No, <laughs> you I, don't I, think- no, it was not very good. I don't know how to prove. That was uh <laughs> And you know what though? I, the dance is so it's so weird. You know, you have things like the time warp that actually give you instructions. This one was kind of weird. Tilt your head like he often what's the actual lyric? Tilt your head like he often does? What does that mean? What exactly does that mean? <laughs> Tilt your head like you see him do. Okay, which way? Is that upward, downward, leftward, rightward, uh, diagonal? I, uh, Maybe elongated. I don't know. <laughs> like a He-Man laugh and you go, ha, 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 and you put your head backward. Is that the image <laughs> I'm supposed to get in my head? I, I promise you this. Later on, he sings. Uh, okay, It becomes more than just a cackle in the background. Well, you know, okay. after you do karaoke all night and you've had a few drinks, all of us sound like Freddy Krueger, don't we? Seriously. Yeah. Is no. that when you do the Freddy? Well, <laughs> yes. I've been known to do the Freddy at a karaoke bar from time to time. Not really. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, well, uh, my head's about to tilt back like his does and, and go to sleep. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Exactly. Uh, I know. I, I'm, I'm hoping I, I live for the next podcast. But Well, uh, I'll tell you, before you fall asleep and get killed in your dreams, please visit nowplayingpodcast.com to hear our other podcasts and our other retrospective series. We have Friday the 13th, Halloween, Star Trek, Terminator, a whole bunch of different kinds of series. You can find them all at nowplayingpodcast.com in our archive section. You can also find a link to our forums where you can discuss this podcast and others with other listeners just like yourself. If you enjoy what you're listening to, please leave us a positive review on iTunes so other listeners like yourself can find us. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. You can follow us there. We're pretty much on every social media of choice, and you can find us at nowplayingpodcast.com. Uh, and if Arnie, you see us in person, run up and tilt your head like he does and do the Freddy for us. <laughs> and I'll know to run away real fast. <laughs> You're lucky that you just don't head downstairs since you live in L.A. to Man's Chinese Theater where somebody does the Freddy and stabs people who don't tip big enough. That's, that's a true story, you know. I'll, I'll tell that story. I promise you. <laughs> All right. 
Well, we'll join you next time for A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge. And until then, whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Thank you for listening to our Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective. But there's so much more to learn. Keep coming to NowPlayingPodcast.com every week to get the latest episode. Oh, yeah. Great to be back in business. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, stop by our forums to post your thoughts on this series. You can also find us on Twitter as NowPlayingPod or our NowPlayingPodcast fan page on Facebook. Links to the forums, Facebook, and Twitter pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Next time, don't, don't stay away so long. A Nightmare on Elm Street is copyright and trademarked New Line Cinema and Warner Brothers Entertainment. You think you've got what it takes. <laughs> now Playing is not affiliated with New Line Cinema, Warner Brothers Entertainment, or Platinum Dunes. I am... Now playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2010, all rights reserved. People do it better than he do. He did. Hmm. Than he do. Than he do. He do. Well, I know what's going on the clip reel. <laughs> the jump rope song, all of that stuff. Jump it, rope it, songs not till later, but okay. Oh, I got that wrong then. Never mind. Cut me. <laughs> but not with a knife. Not with razor blades. <laughs> Arnie, I'm going to come in the middle of this one and agree with Stuart 100. She's terrible. <laughs> She's how are you coming future. in on the middle if you're agreeing with Stuart? <laughs> He's 100%. cutting into the middle. I'm of cutting the into the middle here with my Freddy glove that I have on my right hand and saying, "Let me tell you though, I, and this is a side I'll probably cut this, but when I was 13 or 14, however old I was when that came on, I loved Freddy and I loved mostly naked women, and that show had both in abundance. So you know where I was every Saturday night. <laughs> now, were you wearing the glove where you're watching the mostly naked women, and do we have to hear about that? I wouldn't want to. I didn't want to stain the glove. <laughs> this is becoming Stewart's nightmares now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, but I have a qu- quick thing. Go back to the plot of the movie. <laughs> nah, let's talk more about wet dreams. So, <laughs> well, it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? Sort of. Yeah, there you go. Tie it all in.